We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast. Where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. This episode, we'll be talking, well... We have a Champions League roundup, MLS Decision Day, USA versus England, part one of this year, MLS MVP, Dahmer, U.S. Men's National Team Optimism, and so much more. But first, joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you doing on this Wednesday, October 5th of the year 2022? I am doing well. I noticed you just lumped in Jeffrey Dahmer with a whole bunch of other stuff. <laughs> so I finished, yeah, I finished the Dahmer uh, miniseries, I guess it would be. Ten episodes over there on uh, on Netflix. This was, uh, I read one of their most successful episodal types of things that they have had. So a lot of people are into the macabre uh, story of uh, Jeffrey Dahmer and has, you know, kind of brought it all up. I was in my 20s back in the 90s when it all happened and it was horrendous at the moment and that it has been turned into this uh this incredible 10-part series i think i think the guy that plays Dahmer does a really really uh good job and i think that they they handled it in a way that you know look it's still an entertainment piece um and there's probably plenty of dramatic license that is taken but i don't think that they are glorifying this monster and this this animal but it is it is riveting um sometimes it, it probably shouldn't have been 10 uh episodes it goes on a little bit long and it drags a little bit uh at times but for the most part oof, i mean this this was this was crazy crazy times and it, it goes into how much more it was but yeah i recommend it uh did you watch anything my friend I had a great Tuesday night um, that did have a weird ending. Ooh, okay. What, uh, what's, what was the great part? How did it start out so great? I went to the Hollywood Bowl. Ooh. 
Who'd you see? Uh, for a concert, Nas, Wu-Tang, and Busta Rhymes. And over the course of the show, uh, they brought out uh, Jadakiss, Redman, LL Cool J, and Mary J. Blige. I know that most of those names mean absolutely nothing <laughs> to you. I've uh, heard of Mary J. Blige. Or, or anybody else here. You're too old. And then people like our director, Aaron, weren't even born yet when any of those people were relevant. So um, I am dating myself a little bit. Um, Who was the best of the performers? Uh, Who brought the house down? Uh, Method Man was was incredible. He brought it. I thought, yeah. Uh, uh, Buster Rhymes too, uh, terrific. So it was a great show, right? But the weird ending is Nas, who is my favorite uh, rapper. Oh, you've this said was, that before. This yes, was I my sixth time seeing him live. Right. Wu Tang, by the way, remember I mentioned on this podcast that was my first ever concert when I was at Michigan. Yep. I went to a concert in Detroit, Wu Tang Clan. Um, so uh, Nas was closing out the show by performing one mic. Uh, which is a, a song classic. you've never heard classic of. A classic no, song. Uh, classic. And, and they went just past the 11 p.m. curfew. Oh, L.A. Yeah. has a very strict. Yep. And so they shut his mic off mid-song. Wow. The, the place was stunned. Everybody was looking at each other like, what just happened? It was, it was a very awkward. And then all the rappers just kind of looked at each other and said, I guess we're done. And they just walked off stage. That's it, huh? <laughs> you know, uh, Elvis Costello. Uh, you know who Elvis Costello is? Sure. He, uh, at one point during a couple of tours that he was doing, and probably maybe he still does it now, he would close out the show with just him and an acoustic guitar, but no amplification at all. So everybody kind of had to hush. And it was, it was an amazing, uh, you know, bit of um, theatrics and actually quite moving and beautiful. I would have loved if they had done that there, where it would have been, take it right back down to its most, uh, to its rawest form there. No microphones. No, uh, you know, accompaniment or anything like that. And just if he had just gone off on the stage without the microphone, that's what he should have done. Lost opportunity, my friend. You know, so it happens. But good show nonetheless. Absolutely. All right. All right. Um, look, there is a lot of soccer. Are you, uh, are you ready to light this candle? Let's do it. All right. Look, let's uh, let's get right into MLS because we are on we are in decision week and decision day is coming on the weekend. We have the mini decision day that is happening uh, right now, Wednesday, as we speak. But let's start on the Western Conference, okay? Because that is much more decided right now. Um, where do you want to start? So just to set the table, LAFC have clinched the one seed. Austin are locked into number two. Dallas, the Galaxy, and Nashville have all clinched playoff spots. But as far as which one of those teams will be hosting first-round games, it's still very fluid. Dallas are third right now, but they could end decision day fifth. Nashville and the Galaxy could finish anywhere from third to seventh. Um, so those teams still have a lot to play for on decision day in terms of seating and home field, et cetera. Uh, Dallas hosts SKC, the Galaxy away to Houston, um, and Nashville away to LAFC. Uh, but where the drama really is, you know, is those two remaining playoff spots. You have four teams fighting for them. And the delicious part is those four teams battle head to head. Portland are six right now. Minnesota seven. RSL eight. Vancouver nine. Minnesota hosts Vancouver decision day. RSL hosts Portland. All right. So RSL hosting Portland. And keep in mind, all the games are played at the same time. Um, 5 p.m. Eastern time. RSL hosting Portland. I think Portland's in trouble. Okay. Uh, you got to go to RSL. It's 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 not an easy place to play. Uh, as we mentioned, if if Salt Lake were to win that, they would jump above Portland. But obviously, Minnesota that could change now, things. Too. Here's the delicious part. Okay, any of the four teams: RSL, Portland, Minnesota, Vancouver, 
If they win, they're in. If they lose, they're out. And then uh, Portland and Minnesota would get in with a draw. So they have that extra club in their bag. But it's just it's amazing how it, it's set up that way. And the the mindset and literally the, the setup that you have going into a game where you know a point is enough. And you know, whether it's Portland or Minnesota, well, Minnesota playing at home, right? So that's it's hard to kind of go into a defensive shell. And even whether it's home or away, that's that's dangerous to do for any team. And yet the tendency is that's what you want to do. And you just you don't want to do anything stupid. And Minnesota, they're only one point from their last six. They've been dreadful. So uh, they only need a point. But but they, even that's been tough sledding for them <laughs> in recent yeah, weeks. I think I think Minnesota will get the point at home. Um, what do you think? Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. But it sounds like you think RSL beat Portland. I think RSL beat Portland. Um, and they need that win. You know, yeah, I'll, I'll go with RSL beating Portland. I think that, yeah. And then I got Minnesota at the very least getting the point against Vancouver. Although Vancouver has really come on here at the end. Um, let's see. You know, LA Galaxy is in the playoffs, but they get to go to Houston for a possibility of, uh, third place, right? If FC Dallas loses. Yes. Uh, yeah. The Galaxy are trying to get a home game in the first round. That's the big focus. Yeah. I mean, Houston's already golfing. So uh, that's that's certainly doable for them. Uh, and FC Dallas, as you mentioned, playing SKC, they can draw. Uh, if, if they draw, they lock up third place. Correct. And yeah, I think so. I, I think that FC Dallas gets the uh, at the very least a point against SKC, LAFC, Nashville. Hmm. Nashville is in an interesting position because they can finish in a bunch of different places. Here. Right, right. They're in, but they're not sure where, if they're going to be home or away, first round of the playoffs. I mean, we know that as goes Mukhtar, <laughs> so goes Nashville. And that, that worries me that we're relying so much on one play. Yeah, I don't think that, I think LAFC beats Nashville there. So, um, all right. Anything else when it comes to the Western Conference? That is it. All right, Mossy. Uh, that was the West. Let's go to the East now. Uh, some things are coming into focus here, but still there is going to be a lot of drama come uh, the weekend. Uh, where should we start? Well, there's still a question about the one seed in the East. Philadelphia with a two-point lead over Montreal, but Montreal have more wins. Uh, on decision day, Philadelphia hosts Toronto, Montreal away to Inter-Miami. If Montreal were to win and Philadelphia were to drop points, Montreal would get the one seed and not Philadelphia, which would be quite a development. Wow. Can you imagine Philadelphia pissing it away here at the uh, at the last minute here to uh, our friends from the Great White North there, Montreal? But by the way, Montreal, hats off to Montreal and uh, over Nancy over there. My goodness, that they're even in that position, you know, says how good they are. So do you, do you think ultimately Philadelphia will hold on? Yes, I okay. think they get a win over Toronto and clinch that one seed. So um, five teams in the East have clinched playoff spots. Philadelphia, Montreal, NYCFC, the Red Bulls, and Inter-Miami. Inter -Miami, who, who, wait, who's fifth, Mossy? Inter-Miami punching their ticket. The with team his, from down in Miami? David Beckham's Inter-Miami yeah, is in the playoffs? Midweek win over Orlando. NYCFC guaranteed a top four finish, so they know they'll be hosting a first-round game. And that game would be at Red Bull Arena unless they're facing the Red Bulls, which is still possible. Uh, then they'd have to figure out somewhere else to play it. Uh, so that's the situation there. But I think you, either way, it'll be at Red Bull Arena. Right? I mean, that, 
if they're facing the, the well, no, but if if they're the higher seed and they're facing the Red Bulls, they couldn't have a quote unquote home game be in the Red Bulls home stadium, so they'd figure out somewhere else to put that. That would Why? be a bit farcical. <laughs> Why can't NYCFC play their home? You're saying NYCFC playing their home game? <laughs> yes. Imagine if NYCFC are the higher seed facing the Red Bulls in the playoffs and their quote-unquote home game against the Red Bulls is at the Red Bulls stadium. That would be kind of farcical. But that's what they do. They play all over the place. <laughs> well, they that that's apparently a bridge too far for MLS because they've said they've figured, they'd figure something else out in that scenario. Uh, but let, hello, let, Connecticut! But oh. let's not bury the lead here. Yes. Inter-Miami yes. in the playoffs. Your thoughts? Uh, congratulations to Inter Miami and to David Beckham and to uh, Chris Henderson, who I think deserves a tremendous amount of credit, as does Mr. Neville there. And there was a time when uh, it was very it was precarious as to whether, you know, I guess you continue on with him or you don't. But Chris Henderson came in, he steadied the ship uh, and, you know, midweek just absolutely demolishing Orlando in that rivalry game for for Florida and you know in a week where Iguain has announced his retirement from soccer he doesn't look like he's stopping and if he's going to go out he's going to go out on on top and and flying it's great um you know this this team came in with a lot of fanfare and obviously we know they cheated they uh they got the punishment they took their punishment and they not only recovered, but they adjusted and they found a way back. And so I got a lot of respect for the folks on and off the field that worked hard to get them to, to this, uh, this position. I didn't necessarily think that it was going to happen, but that they're here and that they're flying right now. I mean, I still don't think they're a great team, but I'm not sure if I if I really want to play them in the in the playoffs, given the way that they are coming into the playoffs. And we've seen time and time again where if you come into the playoffs hot, you know, it's it's a problem, even for higher seed teams. So we have three teams battling for the last two spots, Cincinnati, Columbus, and Orlando. We'll get to that in a second. But Charlotte eliminated from playoff contention by virtue of a 2-2 midweek draw against Columbus in that makeup game. Um, the expansion team, they fought the good fight, hung in there until close to the end of the season, but they will not be going to the playoffs. What do you make of Charlotte in year one? It's weird because I, I think it still in, should be looked at as a successful inaugural season. Uh, you know, the crowds that they got, the, and not just the size of the crowds, but the, the energy of the crowds. You know, that it's played in a football stadium, yeah, it's not great, but it, it didn't stop their or, or dampen their enthusiasm. And so... I think that they also deserve a tremendous amount of attention and credit for making the league better. The league is better with Charlotte in it. Now, can they improve? And keep in mind that a lot of us, including myself, didn't think that Charlotte was going to even be in the running when it came to the last week of the season for a playoff spot. So that they were there was great. They're going to feel <laughs> hard done because of the situation of the postponed game and the restrictions that they had going into that must-win game uh, midweek. But, you know, the rules are the rules. And I think that there is a much, there is a brighter future for Charlotte, ultimately, and that this is a year in which they can build upon. You know, you changed your coach, you introduced yourself to your market and to the country and to this league, and I think... Pretty much, there's a resounding um, 
appreciation and, you know, maybe respect and at times probably a begrudging respect for the success that, uh, that Charlotte had. All right. So here's the deal with the playoff uh, picture. Cincinnati are away to DC United on decision day. They only need a point in that game and they're in. <laughs> However, if they were to lose, then they're scoreboard watching our game on FS1, uh, which is Orlando City hosting Columbus. If there's a winner in that game, they would still be okay. If Orlando wins and they go to the playoffs with Orlando, if Columbus wins, they go to the playoffs with Columbus. The nightmare scenario for Cincinnati is they lose and that Orlando City-Columbus game ends in a draw. In that scenario, they get knocked out and cool. Orlando and Columbus go in. Well, first off, the good part is that our game is huge. Uh, and means something. When I say our game, I mean the game that we're doing on Fox in the Eastern Conference, and you know we'll be whipping around and and showing everything that's going on. I I love that. Uh, so Cincinnati going to DC, man. <laughs> I mean DC is a crapshoot, but oh, I mean you've seen Stranger Things, right? It's CC is not going to roll over for uh for cincinnati i mean i think i think when i look at this mossy who who's in the who's in the biggest trouble right now i think columbus you uh yeah i mean they have to go away to orlando now they can play for a draw in that game so so if columbus and orlando tie then they both go through Right and and Cincinnati loses and Cincinnati loses then they both go through but but if if, if Columbus or Orlando tie Columbus goes through regardless right but you know people always ask me about the fixing of games and and all that kind of stuff and I'm not suggesting that here by any stretch of the imagination but I I vividly remember when it was good for both teams playing at times in Italy where everybody kind of looked at each other and said, hey, you know. Yeah, if there's a scenario, let's say we get to the 80th minute on decision day, Cincinnati are getting drilled by D.C. United 4-0. Columbus and uh, Orlando Columbus are saying 0-0. I'm sure there's going to be sort of some. Hey, we we all live to fight another day. Take it easy. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. So it's going to be fun. Decision day. We're excited. Our game is Orlando City Columbus on FS1. But of course, we're bringing updates from all the other action in the Eastern Conference. All right. So we've done the West and we've done the East. Mossy, since it's the last week uh, and the Major League Soccer MVP award is only based on the regular season, I thought as I do each and every year, that I would give you my criteria for my pick when it comes to MLS MVP. As, as those that have followed us before uh, and for any length of time will know, that choosing an MVP in Major League Soccer is subjective. MLS, purposely or not purposely, I don't know, but they do not give us any criteria by which to judge the candidates other than what we think is good or valuable. Um, So over the years, in an effort to kind of simplify things and to provide some level of transparency, I have made up my own criteria. So once again, this is how it goes. Number one, it is all about goal scorers. Scoring a goal is the only way to win a game. So there is nothing more, quote unquote, valuable than those that do it. So it's only about goal scores, right? Number two, 
it's not about how many goals you score, but it's about how many different games you score in. Because I want the player who is consistently scoring in more games, even if his season total might not give him the golden boot. Number three, I don't count penalties. Sorry. I mean, you can at me. You can send your uh, tweets in and stuff like that. I do not count penalties. They do just, for me, they just do not hold the same value as goals from the run of play. I actually think, and I've said this before, Mossy, penalties should be in a separate statistical column. Okay. They can warp perception and they can skew the assessment of a player. And four, and finally, if you are my MVP, you have to be on a team that makes the playoffs. When half of the league in Major League Soccer makes the playoffs, at the very least, a league MVP should be from a playoff team. So those are my criteria. Each year I get, get my data together and I send it off to Paul Carr, the great Paul Carr. And he's got fancy machines over there. And he puts it in and he spits it out. And on the way to work today, he said that as we sit here today, again, on Wednesday, October 5th, leading my MVP race uh, with the weekend to go is Drusy. Okay? Uh, and he is, when y'all told, he's 15 of the criteria that I have. He's 15. At 14 is Arango and Vasquez. And then at 12, it's Ferreira, Gazdag, and Chicharito. Some of you might be saying, well, you know, where's Hani, Hani, uh, Mukhtar? He's actually down at 11. So he's not winning my MVP. Neither is Ferreira, Gazdag, or Chicharito. Any one of Drusi, Arango, and Vasquez could ultimately win it, depending on what happens this weekend. Now, over the years, because Mossy, I'm, an, I'm a huge influencer, all right? And people have tried to sway me one way or the other, and they've tried to ply me with extravagant gift, gifts. This is one of those gifts here, Mossy. This is sent to me by the good people over there at Nashville. And look, this is, this is wonderful. I thank them. This is a Hani Mukhtar uh, record, vinyl. I don't know if there's audio files out there, but this is a vinyl record. And it's actually, there is a record. I don't have a record player. I'm not one of those vinyl people, but uh, evidently producer Sean does have a record player, so he's going to find out what's on it. And this is them signed, by the way, right here. Uh, this is them lobbying for Mukhtar to be the MVP. And on the back, instead of your track listing, it basically has side A, side B of all of the different goals he scored. It's actually very clever. Um, probably cost them a good penny, but you know, they're, they're uh, supporting their guy out there. Over the years, I've gotten a lot of these different things. Some more creative than others, some better than others. This is one of the better ones, I will say. But again, since I have my criteria, that's that's just the way that it goes. Agree? Disagree? Please send in your comments to me. Masi, you've seen me go through this spiel now a number of years. Uh, anything uh, you'd like to add? Yeah, I've expressed my displeasure with your formula. And why the is uh, first of all, I, I don't agree with the premise that it has to be a goal scorer. I've seen plenty of teams in my day where I thought a midfielder was the most important player on the team. Um, but you would agree that the most valuable thing in soccer is putting the ball in the back of the net. Sure. Okay. Um, and your criteria doesn't allow for uh, 
the how much talent a guy had around him, factoring in the degree of difficulty of a guy having less talent around him and what type of team he played on. There's just not a lot of leeway there for sort of the, the eye test human element if you're just going to adhere strictly to this mathematical you think formula. I'm, it's much uh, too mathematical, right. data-driven, much more uh, robotic. And, you know, and strict. You, you have uh, come up with a formula, which means that Hani Mukhtar isn't even in the conversation for you, which sort of flies in the face of every sort of smart, knowledgeable person that's followed this MLS season. <laughs> it wouldn't so, be the first time. <laughs> so, it is, so that is something something to think about. But nevertheless, uh, it's the way you've chosen to go. Right. It is what it's it is. Fine. Make so, your own criteria. <laughs> All right. Listen, um, like I said, uh, let me know if you agree or disagree. I mean, you will whether I want you to or not. But I do actually want to, want to hear from you when it comes to maybe you have your own criteria uh, as to who should be and why the MLS MVP. And again, it will stop. The uh, the voting will stop at the end of this this weekend, and uh, you know may the best man win, whether it's with my criteria or not. All right, we're gonna take a quick break, and when we come back, oh yeah, we'll take a trip around uh, Europe because there's all sorts of stuff happening, in particular when it comes to Champions League. We'll have a recap for you. Don't go. Ahead. I'm Alex Rodriguez, and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is the deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome back. All right, Mossy. Uh, big week when it comes to Champions League. Should we go around? Where do you want to start? Uh, we have a Cinderella story in this season's Champions League. I like Cinderella. The band. All right. Uh, so you want to go right to Bruges, right? And we're calling it Bruges. We're not doing the Bruges thing, right? Club Bruges. Two no winners over Atletico Madrid. Three wins out of three. Zero goals conceded. Uh, the star of the show... Former Barcelona striker Ferran Jubla, who had a goal and an assist. Our good friend Tejan Buchanan also played a part in one of the goals. Uh, they are looking good. I mean, undefeated, unscored upon, uh, and flying right now. And unless something drastic happens here, if they continue on here, their first time ever into uh, the knockout phase. So congratulations to them. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun to see. It's fun to see, especially in this era. And for for teams where the disparity between spending can sometimes be so dramatic and big, it's not that we don't have the elites and the super clubs also there that did uh, did fine. But this is fun. This is good. Atletico, by the way, started Antoine Griezmann, which they're reluctant to do because they're trying to keep his right. minutes down so it doesn't trigger that uh, permanent buy option in the loan deal with Barcelona. But every now and then, when Simeone feels like it's a really big game, he'll put him in there from the start, which he did. And Antoine Griezmann missed a penalty, so that gamble uh, did not pay off. Bruges take all three points. Well, you mentioned uh, Barcelona. You want to move to them? Yes, that was the big game on Tuesday at the San Siro. Barcelona fell 1-0 to Inter. Uh, Chalanolu with the goal late in the first half. Uh, a lot of VAR controversy in this one. In the first half, Inter thought they had a penalty when the ball hit Eric Garcia's hand, but they reviewed it, and they spotted a millimetric offside by Lautaro Martinez in the buildup. Which negates it. Uh, all right. 
Um, and then in the second half, when Barcelona was trailing 1-0, they thought they had equalized. Dembele crossed it. Onana and Ansu Fati both went for it. It dropped for Pedri to slot it home, but they reviewed it and found a handball by Ansu Fati, which a lot of people were upset about. I did not have a big issue with that call. I was okay with it. Uh, but the one at the end, I had a major <laughs> issue with. Everybody had an um, issue with it. Barcelona should have had a penalty late, a cross into the inter box. Denzel Dumfries goes to clear it, misses it with his head. It clearly hits his arm. Uh, and how they could review that and not give a penalty is beyond me. Xavi was furious, rightly so. Barcelona got completely screwed on that. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I stand for referees, and I will give them the benefit of the doubt, even more so nowadays because of the technology that they have at their disposal that <laughs> is put in place to make things clearer and to actually protect them in a certain way. And yet, in something like this, and it's not to say that that the subjective nature of this still doesn't exist. But I think if you polled people after that and took out the, uh, the affiliation, even neutrals, everybody would look at that and say, well, how, how could you come to that decision? And I think when those types of things happen, and, and to be fair, it doesn't happen often, but when it does, it hurts the game, it hurts VAR, and it hurts refereeing when those types of things happen. So yeah, they, they, uh, Xavi and, and, uh, and company have a right to feel uh, aggrieved. Uh, Barcelona now third in the group. They're trying to avoid their second straight group, group stage exit. They, they do still have home games against Inter and Bayern Munich, uh, but nevertheless, they've put themselves in a little bit of trouble here. So keep an eye on that. Um, one team that's not had any trouble at all in this season's Champions League is Napoli, who... Uh, producer Sean Sullivan tells us that some Napoli fans are upset we haven't given them enough love so far this season. I've mentioned them a few times. They're whining. I mean, I learned I, I learned Italian, but I didn't learn the word for whining. But stop whining, okay? We, you, you go out and you have an incredible result like this on the road, 6-1 to one over IX. We're going to talk about you, but you got to earn it. Yeah, it was uh, two from Raspadori. Then uh, Di Lorenzo, Zielinski, Varaskelia, and Simeone all found the back of the net as well. 13 goals in three games for them in the Champions League. First place in their group. They're also atop the table in Serie A. So Luciano Spalletti doing an incredible job. Anguissa in the midfield has been very impressive. So I like everything about this team right now. I, I, I do too. Um, having said that, it was a weird game in that, yes, you lose 6-1, to one, so you think you're getting just crushed. And yet there were there were opportunities, and you know sometimes when the floodgates open, the floodgates open, and and they did. And for for Ajax, which you know is a, a storied club, you know this this at home, this was this was a message. And yes, we will talk more about Napoli going uh, going forward, and and they deserve it. And to be fair to you, Mossy, you have certainly brought up Napoli over. Uh, you know, over the recent times here. So it's not as if we've never talked about them. Uh, before this game, Ajax put out this really neat tweet. I don't know if you saw that. It was like a picture of Cruyff and Maradona in heaven watching the game together, uh, which yeah. everybody thought was kind of a cool angle to come up with for this game. Um, the other match in this group, uh, Liverpool, uh, two nil winners at home over Rangers, uh, Trent Alexander Arnold with a lovely free kick and then Mo Salah from the penalty spot. So Liverpool much needed, yes. much needed for Liverpool with what they are, you know, going through and the, and the difficulties and challenges right now for, uh, for Klopp and, and company. And it wasn't as if they were 
back to their old selves, but you know, they beat up on a less uh, on a lesser team. And you know, Trent Ar Alexander Arnold, given all of the criticism and everything that's that's gone on with him, and all of you know the constant chatter, which is what happens in in England. That's a nice. It doesn't necessarily mean that the chatter is going away because it wasn't it wasn't necessarily directed at him scoring free kicks or anything like that. But this is a nice way to at least say, hey, uh, I'm a whole lot better than a lot of people think I am. Uh, shifting to Wednesday, the biggest game, I think, was Chelsea hosting AC Milan. Chelsea with the 3-0 win. Fofana, Aubameyang, and Reese James with the goals. Uh, Milan have all sorts of injuries right now, including the starting right back, Calabria, who's going to be out the remainder of this calendar year, which meant an opportunity from the start for Sergio Dest. Uh, he, like the rest of the AC Milan backline, had a had a rough day, but at least he got to play, which is more than we can say for his U.S. national team teammate, uh, Christian Pulisic, who did not start, did not come on. Chelsea made five subs. None of them was him. So, so much for the fact that that assist over the weekend against Crystal Palace was going to be this new dawn and <laughs> Graham Potter's arrival. Uh, what do you think? No, I mean, well, the desk part of it, yeah, it's glass half full or glass half empty. I think... I yes, I want Serginho Dest to be playing and playing consistently right now, and at least he's on the field and he's starting, even in what was a, a pretty bad performance from uh, from Milan. It wasn't like you said; it wasn't all him. Um, but that even that's better than still what Christian Pulisic is. It's not enduring because he's he's going to be fine. But the reality is, I think, is setting in on on maybe has already on Potter and and this team right now that Christian Pulisic is a specific type of player. And if you are not structured to play with that type of player, then he is not of no use, but of much lesser use. I was uh, texting with our good friends Ian Joy and Keith Costigan about this today. Yep. Um, Smart man. Yep. Pulisic made his senior debut in early 2016. It was our first season covering the Bundesliga. Uh, it occurred under Thomas Tuchel. And so in terms of managers in his career, it's been... Thomas Tuchel, Peter Bosch, Stoger, Lucien Favre, uh, then Lampard, then Tuchel, who I'm counting again. It's like Grover Cleveland. He counts twice because it was at a different <laughs> club, different stage of Pulisic's career. So he could have come around on him the second time around, but didn't. Right. And now Graham Potter. It's early days on the Graham Potter, but let's say he doesn't get on the field much. It's now a lot of managers he's had, none of which I would argue fully trusted him, fully bought in and felt like he should be this week in, week out starter who you build an attack around. Uh, I mean, that's kind of an interesting pattern. It, it is. And, you know, if you go through a career, if you have any type of longevity, you are going to play under multiple coaches. And some of them you'll get along with and some of them you won't. Some of them you will be their cup of, cup of tea and some of them you won't. But when, when it starts to be a pattern on very different types of coaches, that's, that's where you worry. We always know that the Christian Pulisic is a, is a unique type of player and a unique type of individual. But if if Christian Pulisic is constantly going to be waiting around for that perfect situation, then it's never going to come because the perfect situation never exists. And at some point, you're going to have to adjust and or at least meet somebody halfway uh, rather than constantly waiting for somebody else from a coaching perspective to adjust to you. And to be clear, he's he's had stretches under some of those managers yeah. on name where he played regularly, most notably under Lampard during their post-COVID restart. But that's because he played so well that Lampard couldn't take him out of the lineup. When I when I think of a manager really trusting a player, it's that he gives them the benefit of the doubt. Even if his form is just so-so, his natural inclination is to start him. I've never had that feeling with 
any manager in Pulisic's career where he has to pretty much be playing great and much better than the alternative. If it's close, he usually doesn't get that benefit. Of the well, doubt. as I mentioned in the previous segment when we were talking about um, the uh, the MLS MVP, I value consistency. And, and I think most managers, if you ask them, would you like somebody that plays really well, world-class level one game, and then takes three games off where they're not good and then comes back and you have that up and down nobody's going to want that as opposed to a, at a lesser level but on a consistent managers they want to be able to count on you they are counting on you for their future and for their job and if they can't count on you because every third game you play well yeah that's a problem you're going to find that you are not going to play a lot despite your immense talent uh, a guy who's getting on the field regularly and producing is Erlen Holland. Uh, we'll go to Jeez, that game next. Uh, Manchester City, a 5-0 demolition of Copenhagen. Holland with two of the goals. 28 in 22 games in his Champions League career. What can you say about him that we haven't already seen? Nothing. You can't, I mean, he should have had another hat trick. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Frankly, I'm shocked he did because right? he scored the first two pretty right? early. And, and they think, pulled him well, off. And, you know, the, the management of him. I mean, he has had injuries, but nothing chronic and he is obviously a, a specimen when it comes to his physical uh, abilities and the thing and the way that he uses his physicality but you know you you also at a certain point if you're if you're pep you are going to have to you're going to want to manage manage it for the long season that is coming and you know for any player nobody play, likes to be taken off especially a goal scorer and you know they feed off of off of goals and I actually like the fact that that he wants to stay on, that he wants to play, that he wants to score more goals. And you saw the reaction in Pep's face after he scored where even Pep, who let's, has seen it all, let's be honest, okay, and has seen the greatest and has coached the greatest, for him to have those types of reactions, it, it said to me, it's not anything I'm doing, Pep. I, I, th this is the guy that's, that's doing it, and we are seeing something and the start of something that is just unlike <laughs> anything we've ever seen. So it's great. It's must-see. Uh, so no hat-trick for Holland today, but in the Juventus game, Angel Di Maria with a hat-trick of assists. Uh, Juve 3-1 winners over Maccabi Haifa. Wesson McKinney started, went all 90 minutes. Josh Cohen started in goal for Maccabi Haifa. The goals were Rabio with a double, and Vlahovic got one as well. A much-needed win for Juventus. See, see, there's a difference that we were talking about. With Weston McKinney, you know that your base level of Weston McKinney is such that is going to make you competitive and is competitive within the team and that consistency that goes on. It's not that, that Weston McKinney doesn't have poor games, but he has very few of them. Now, he has some great games, but there's just that consistency of him. And again, he's starting. The team is getting the wins. You know, they're not doing great Serie A-wise, but I think he is, again, valued in a very different way than uh, than a Christian Pulisic. Uh, Benfica, PSG, 1-1. Uh, uh, I mentioned Di Maria staying with the left-footed Argentine theme. Uh, Lionel Messi scored an absolutely sensational uh, goal in this one uh, to give PSG a 1-0 lead, and then Benfica equalized, and a very good result for them uh, to hold PSG to a draw. Uh, Messi... We know he had a kind of an awkward first season there. Second season's been much better. He's been getting better and better. And I would say this is the first time in his PSG career where PSG Messi feels like Barcelona Messi to me, where almost every game now you expect something absolutely brilliant from him. It, this particular goal, by the way, I mean, you say that it was an awesome goal. 
in and of itself, it wasn't awesome. It was a nice shot from the outside. He curls it in, which, which he, as others, can do. But the simplicity in it, I think, is where the beauty is. The, the interaction that, he, that he's had and the connection that he has with, with Neymar and Mbappe out there, the, this was you know, paint by numbers almost, but that everybody can see what is going to happen and yet it still happens, that for me is just as amazing as something that you go, oh, I've never seen that before. Yes, you have seen these patterns before and yet everybody knows it, everybody plans for it and they still can't stop it because at every point during that play, there is a clinical touch movement and technique that results that results in the goal. So it's it's worth it. However, it's not just about scoring goals; it's about results too. So is this a this is not the worst result? No, but it's a little bit of a stumble. I, yeah. Just to go back to your point about Messi, you know, I, I hear sometimes whenever somebody like a Mo Salah scores a, a beautiful goal, I hear invariably some Premier League announcer say, "Boy, if that was Messi, it would have been replayed all over the world." The implication being that if it's Messi, it gets more attention. I actually think the opposite. Uh, I you think, don't think we appreciate it. We think no, we, uh, I, yeah, I, we take I, it for granted. I think he often scores goals that because he, he he's made it seem so common that we don't make a big deal about that. If it was another player, it would be the nicest goal they've ever scored in their career. I mean, here you are. I mean, I'm not attacking you, but I'm saying because it's messy, that goal didn't get you that excited because we've seen him do much more amazing things than that. But if it was just some random player, that I think that goal would have gotten that's more. Not no? what I'm, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the simplicity <laughs> of that goal in particular on the surface would not measure up to the oohs and ahs of other goals. And yet I put it as important and as valuable. Okay, as, so, I, so, as I guess, so I but, guess I'm making a different point. But, 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 that, but that you have to apologize for Messi because he's not getting enough love out there. I mean... All right, go ahead. You do you. <laughs> uh, well, Messi, uh, second on the Champions League scoring list behind only Cristiano Ronaldo. Angel Di Maria, who we mentioned, uh, is second on the Champions League assists list behind Cristiano Ronaldo. They're both gaining on him, and Ronaldo can't add to his numbers because, as we know, he's playing Europa League football this season. That's got to be killing well, him. Well, we talked earlier this week about whether his, his legacy is being tarnished. And by the way, I do want to clarify something. Um <laughs> About that, because we had that conversation in the last pod and they made a little clip out of it. Uh, I've always been a staunch Messi over Ronaldo guy. Um, the way the way you worded it, and I don't think you meant it this way, but you said, is 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 this causing Messi to overtake Ronaldo? So a lot of people seized on that on Twitter. They said, well, why are we acting as if Ronaldo was ahead to begin with? I don't think that's how you right, intended the no. question, but, but some people interpret it that way. You're a Messi guy, I'm a Ronaldo. Right, right, right. In, in this evergreen type of, uh, type of debate. And we're at a point right now Let's be honest, we haven't been at a point like this where one is struggling so much more than the other. I mean, one is literally not playing <laughs> right now. You mentioned the, you know, they can't even keep up when it comes to Champions League because one isn't even in Champions League, let alone playing. All right, what else? Uh, Dortmund flashed some of their young talent. They went to Spain and hammered Sevilla 4-1. Uh, Sevilla finally put Julian Lopetegui out of his misery, announcing after the game that he's been sacked. It's something everybody it was knew was going to happen, and man. they handled very poorly by them to leave him sort of dead man walking here for a little bit. And it sounds like it's going to be Jorge Sampaoli, who used to manage Sevilla, is going to come back and take over. Uh, for Dortmund, I mentioned their young talent. Jude Bellingham scored again, goals in all three uh, match days this season. Adeyemi got one, which uh, Mukoku had an unbelievable touch in the buildup to that goal. So, uh, pretty good day for Dortmund. Do you think uh, this is a, a more, you know, 
bigger picture question when it comes to uh, Bellingham, who took the road less travel and everything. You think he's going to start given that uh, that first game uh, that uh, England would be against uh, Iran in the World Cup? I do. Yeah, I've actually heard a lot of podcasts uh, recently, English podcasts, debating that. Some people think he should definitely start. Others, well, I don't know. Depends on the formation that Southgate puts out. Uh, but I think he's becoming a guy that has to be out there in the 11. And then you think about their second game. We all know who it's against on Black Friday. Right. It'd be him and Declan Rice dueling it out with Adams, Musa, et cetera. So, I mean, I, I, I just love the story of the way he, he saw Jaden Sancho and recognized that this was a club, a club that would play young players. And more importantly, he he is performing and he is you know, captaining and he is doing incredible things as a teenager. I was a moron when I was a teenager. Uh, uh, no Gio Reyna. Uh, he's still, still nursing hurt. that injury that he picked up over the international break with the U.S. Um, uh, also, Wednesday, Leipzig beat Celtic 3-1. And Kunku on target. Andre Silva had a double, so nice win for them. Uh, also in that same group, Real Madrid, uh, 2-1 winners over Shakhtar. Rodrigo and Vinicius with the goals, which made me very happy. Uh, so that was it for match day three of the Champions League. We're at the midway point of uh, this season's group. We are, okay, and so uh, we talked about Bruges, right? That would be the surprise of where we are right now. Bayern Munich sitting at the top of their group, so that's not a surprise. Uh, Sporting sitting at the top of their group over Tottenham uh, in Group D. RB Salzburg uh, at the top of their group. Um, and that's an interesting one with Chelsea and Milan in it. Uh, so that would be another one. Real Madrid, no surprise there at the top of the group. Man City, we've talked about just the dominance that they have. Uh, and PSG sitting at the top of uh, Group H. So a couple of surprises, which is a good thing. But <clears throat> the usual suspects continue on. Um, where should we go now? Uh, let's look ahead to some yes. big European big games, games at the weekend. weekend. Big games. We've got uh, their classicer, Dortmund playing host to Bayern on Saturday. I mentioned that we covered the Bundesliga for five seasons on Fox. We went to great lengths to try to talk up this rivalry and to be honest, lately, Dortmund haven't held up there in the bargain. Uh, Bayern have won 10 of the last 11 Bundesliga meetings, a lot of those wins by pretty big score lines. So we'll see. We'll see about Gio Reyna, first of all, if he's available to give it an American component. But even if he's not, there's still so much exciting young talent that I, I'll be tuning in for Musiala for Bayern. And I just mentioned guys like Mukoku and Bellingham and Adeyemi for Dortmund. So it should be a fun game. I have hope. I have hope yeah. that it is going to rise above the realities uh, and the disparities between these uh, these two teams. And, you know, the for more than a decade, the central figure in this rivalry has been Lewandowski on both sides, first with Dortmund and then uh, he went to yeah. Bayern. Uh, yeah, so it's going to be interesting to watch uh, their classicer without him involved. But uh, And, you know. you know, Bayern Munich still needs to kind of rack up some points and continue on and, and kick on. They've had a good week, uh, so we'll see if they can go into Dortmund in their classicer. Uh, also on Saturday, big game in Italy, uh, AC Milan will host Juventus at the San Siro. As we mentioned, AC Milan, all sorts of injuries. So I expect Sergino Dest to start again. And Wesson McKinney has been be, starting for Juventus. So I think cool. both of them. From a U.S. perspective, that'll be yeah. fun, fun to see. You know, incidentally, we were talking off air and you mentioned the San Siro. Um, I went there with my dad in 2005. We went to an Inter-Parma Serie A game when Adriano was at the peak of his powers. And I loved it. I thought it was an incredible stadium. And since then, it's kind of become a stadium that's brought up when people talk about how decrepit Italian football is. And sure enough, there's news now that uh, Inter and AC Milan are going to build a brand new stadium. They've gotten approval from the city and everybody's celebrating that. And I get that Italian football absolutely needs to evolve. Uh, so it makes sense. 
But I, I'm going to be sad to see that stadium go. I, I still, whenever I watch, you know, we had Inter Barcelona this week. Whenever I watch any game on TV there, it still feels big. There's something about that stadium that still ha- carries a mystique with me. It, I remember the very first time I played in it, even before I went and played in Italy, uh, the very first time I, I was invited over at Christmas bef- a couple years before even the World Cup. They wanted an American representation, uh, and I was on the national team at the time, and I went over and played in a Christmas charity game. And it was all an all-star type of thing. And, and I remember walking into the stadium. And the great part about it is that there's no track, and it is kind of straight up. And it is one, absolutely, it's one of the great cathedrals in the game. Now, the nostalgia and the romance for it, uh, I think, has has enabled it to survive, but it's also relative to new places not even close and we know the problems when it comes to facilities in Italy so that they are going to move on I think yes you're going to lose a part of your history in San Siro but at some point everything needs to come to an end even even San Siro as much as uh, as much as you are like like it but it's 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 still an amazing amazing place to your point to see a game and um, it's it, it it's if you get a chance, go, go, go. Uh, big game in England on Sunday. Arsenal will play host to Liverpool. Since Jurgen Klopp took over, it's been 18 games in all competitions between these two. Arsenal has only won one. There was also Community Shield that finished 1-1, and then Arsenal won on penalties, but I count that as a draw. So they've but only had... Mossy, but Mossy, this is 2023 fall Arsenal. It's a whole new leaf. This is everything new. I mean, this is uh, this is different times. Yeah, that's going to be is interesting. It? This is a real chance for them to make a statement, I think, validate everything they've done up to now. Liverpool are a bit all over the place. They had a 3-3 draw against Brighton in their last league game. Obviously beat Rangers in the Champions League, but... But can yeah, you imagine if is... Liverpool go in? Go in? And somehow conjure up, uh, you know, something from the past and <laughs> rain on Arsenal's parade. I'm on a big text chain with a group of Arsenal and Liverpool fans. Uh, we work with Keith Cossigan's on there, sure. Zach Kenworthy, some Arsenal fans, and and uh, that's already the trash talking is already been. It's always fun when those two teams uh, meet. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to that I'm game. Call, I'm calling it right now: Liverpool over Arsenal. Oh wow! Yeah, uh, shoot, oh. shoot your shot. Also in England, Crystal Palace hosts Leeds. I, I just hope Crystal Palace have the right approach. They don't slow the game down because <laughs> otherwise Jesse Marsh is going to be upset. He's going to be, well, he'll be able to be upset from the sideline there because uh, he'll be back coaching right nope, there and he nope. can scream and yell directly at the uh, the opposing coach and or fans or players out there if, God forbid, somebody starts to waste time. Uh, but they, hey, they, they need a result. I mean, you yeah. know, Jesse, they need to, you know, figure it out here and the, it's not easy. And we'll end this segment by talking about a women's international game that we're really excited about. Oh, yeah. Friday, we're going to be covering it. Uh, England versus the United States from sold-out Wembley live on Fox. It's the European champions against the world champions. A lot of people building this up as kind of a test to see if Europe has really caught up and overtaken the U.S. or, or if the U.S. is still, you know... Masi, uh, let me pick your brain for a second here. The uh, the world is still bigger than Europe, right? Yes. I just want to make sure. So when you're talking about world champions, that those are bigger than the European champions, right? Correct. Okay, just uh, just just check. Uh, this is cool. I, I can't wait to see this. Uh, I, I can't wait to see this team that is still in transition and is evolving under Vlako uh, Andonovsky. And you know, up top, uh, Alex Morgan did not make the trip. 
So that's Alex Morgan not there. That's uh, Macario not there. So who ultimately steps into that number nine position for this big game? And let's be honest, Masi, the amount of times where we get to actually see our U.S. Women's National Team in a truly competitive scenario, playing somebody that is of their quality and in an environment that is hostile is minimal. And so this is a great, great game. I cannot wait to uh, to watch it. I would love me nothing. I would love nothing more than to beat the uh, beat England for the first time this year, hopefully, uh, and to and to do it in Wembley in a sold out Wembley would be wonderful. Keep in mind though that for the last two cycles, when it comes to the U.S. Women's National Team, we know they've won the World Cup. They're going for three in a row, something that's never been done. Around about this time, or actually a little closer to the World Cup, they've gotten punched in the nose. It's been with France, and it's been a reminder that people aren't going to roll over and that the elites, which ultimately where they are judged against, um, they can find ways to beat them. And England sees themselves as progressing and evolving, not just to the U.S. level, but maybe in some ways past the level. And so I think they're putting a lot of eggs in this basket as to what happens. Coaches won't say that. And obviously, the World Cup next summer is the most important right now. But if for nothing else, you tune, you, you tune in to see the spectacle of U.S. England in a sold-out stadium with two teams that both believe they are better than, than each other. Would you say these are the two best women's national teams in the world right now? Hmm. I think so. I, I think so. I mean, England chirps a lot. And so that kind of uh, that influences the perception of them. I think that they think they're better than they actually are. Um, but it doesn't mean that they can't beat the U.S. in this game. It's funny. I thought your hesitation there was about the U.S., whether the U.S. right now in current form belongs in that top two or whether you'd argue that there are three or four European nations that might be ahead of them right now. Ahead of them right now? I don't know. I mean, no. I mean, I don't think I think. Nah, this, you're not I ready. Think the, I think the U.S. You know, I, yeah, I still think the U.S. is still has the depth, it, albeit in ex, there's there's a, there's a level of inexperience in this team in particular right now as it transitions. But yeah, they're still they're still the best team. In the world. Fair enough. All right, so that's Friday. Big Fox, can't wait. It should be excellent. That'll be good. All right, let's take another quick break, and when we come back, it's time for Ask Alexi. Don't go anywhere. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. All right, we're back, and it's time for Ask Alexi, that portion of the show where you uh, send in your questions using that hashtag Ask Alexi to all of our different platforms out there. And by the way, on those social media platforms, our uh, handles are SOTU with Alexi. Or, as a lot of people do, you can call into our State of the Union podcast hotline, which is 657-549-2297. That's 657-549-2297. All right, this show, Mossy, I think we have some some voicemail and we have some Twitter uh, responses here. Let's go to the voicemail first. Hey guys, this is David from Texas. Uh, just curious is why Greg brings in 
amazing strikers like Brandon Vasquez from Cincinnati, but doesn't give him any good playing time. I think he's a great option at the number nine striker, especially with Ferrer's form and our lack of uh, striking ability. And then I think just his hold-up play, and then I think he could be a real asset in set pieces since we just can't really find our groove there. Our uh, set piece takers is really not in form. All the corners and free kicks are looking like trash. If you just uh, give me two cents on that, I'd love to hear it all. Thanks. Bye. Okay, uh, David from Texas. I, I think David, if I heard him correctly, uh, is a little bit confused in that you know he was saying that Greg Berhalter has brought in Brandon Vasquez. That is not the case, and that's actually where a lot of the conversation comes right now is that he didn't and decided not to bring Brandon Vasquez into this this last camp. Now, conceivably, he could bring him into this MLS-ish type of camp that they have here coming up for all the players that are done with the season and, and get a look at him there. Uh, that would be better than nothing, but I think it would be very difficult for anybody coming into that camp, let alone somebody that's never been with the team, to come in and make enough of an impression where they then get on the plane to Qatar. But David's point about set pieces, we've talked about the problems, and it's just, it's, it's, it's concerning, but it's also irritating because in this moment and this cycle of progression and evolution, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater here. And a hallmark for many, many years for the U.S. national team has been set pieces and an ability to recognize their value and, more importantly, to capitalize off on them. And this team, it's not that they, they don't. I mean, we look back at the uh, uh, you know, Gold Cups and, and Nations League and that type of stuff where, yes, you found ways. But I want to be excited and get out of my seat each and every time a set piece situation comes up from a U.S. men's national team perspective where, hey, this is a potential opportunity for us to put the ball in the back of the net. And it might not be happening in the course of the regular play, but Christian Pulisic might get taken down or somebody else might get taken down. And I want to be excited about what is in front and the possibility of something happening. And we're not getting that. Keep in mind, again, I'll remind you, the U.S. men's national team has a set piece coach, a specific coach that all he does is worry about defending and attacking uh, set pieces. And that's where this coach will make, uh, will make their money. So that, that's the set piece part. And yeah, that's a problem. Brandon Vasquez is taller, so that would be that would be good. I mean, it goes back to I think that that train is gone. It's it's not it's not going to happen when it comes to Brandon Vasquez. Even though I wanted it to at least get a shot in this last window, I think Greg Verhalter has made very very clearly both in terms of the things that he has said, but more importantly the things that he has done that he's going to dance with the ones that brung him, that he has a belief based on an assessment over the cycle and over time that is not colored by one or two games or one or two moments. And those are the types of players that he is going to, uh, going to go with and, you know, let the chips fall where they may. There's not a Landon Donovan-esque player sitting on the sideline, but there are players, and it's just natural in this, in this course of events with so many different, uh, with so much depth, there are players that if it doesn't go well, People are going to point to, and you know that just that just comes with the territory. Doesn't mean that he made the wrong decision, but because there are players that are that are waiting in the wings and not being utilized at positions that we 
need and are not strong at, you kind of set yourself up for, uh, for some criticism. So David from Texas, while you and I maybe have wanted to see Brandon Vasquez, it, it didn't happen. And I just don't, I don't see it happen unless some crazy soccer goddish type of thing <laughs> uh, happens. Um, let's see. Do we have a text? Is that true, Mossy? Is that what, is that what I'm reading here? Uh, yes. All right, listen, oh, before, before we do this, <laughs> please leave a message. All right. The, the hotline is for message, <laughs> message, uh, messages that you leave. But evidently we have a text from an unknown number here. And so we will read this out, but it's not really a text hotline. I suppose you can do it, but we'd much rather hear from you uh, and your voice here. So we had a text from an unknown number and someone said, why not play a counterattacking 442? I'm assuming he's meaning the, the U.S. men's national team. Now, let's be honest. You, we were talking earlier in the pod about nostalgia and romance. I, I am romantic for a 442, and I truly believe that everything is cyclical and everything comes back around again. And so the de jure type of formation will eventually come back to a 442, but not anytime soon. And you know, the, the strategy involved and the limitations and the challenges in a 442 are are uh, are well documented. I like it because I think it's it's simple, but sometimes in its simplicity, it can be broken down uh, in ways that other formations uh, other formations can't. I I will say, whoever this texter was, the the notion that Greg Berhalter should simplify the roles individually and how this team plays. I can get on board with that. I just think that he is he's run out of time to do maybe what he ultimately planned to do, which is okay. But come the World Cup, uh, I want to make sure that everybody understands and is clear exactly what they want to do. And yes, that should have happened over the over the cycle. And oftentimes in a four four two, it's very clear, just in in and of itself how you are so uh, how you are supposed to play. I don't know. You like the four four two, Mossy? I mean, do you get into all that uh, in the weeds type of stuff when it comes to formations and stuff? Well, it's funny. At a time when we're talking about maybe playing without a striker, this guy wants to play with two up top. <laughs> but I guess I'd have to know who the the players sure. are. Uh, you know, where's the where's the width going to come from? Is it going to be entirely in the fullbacks, destined Jedi? Because if you're thinking about a four man midfield, I assume he would want to do Adams, Musa, McKinney, and one of Reyna or Aronson or somebody like that, and then. I'd have to see who the two up top are. Are they going to be two out and out for? Obviously, you got to still find a place for Pulisic, so presumably he would be one of them. And then the other one would be a center forward type, and we're calling that a four four two. Sure, I mean, I, you sure. know, it's, I guess and, it's semantics. And but. if you if if the mid, if the midfield that we now have three on obviously goes to two, it's much more work for those guys. And if you don't have the ball, it it can get uh, it can get problematic. If I if you started your team right now and you were able to say. Well, I'm going to put the I'm going to put the system in first, and then I'm going to go get the players. Much more of a club type of way of doing it. What would you do? Well, yeah, I wonder if this guy when he when he says four four two, he's viewing Pulisic and I don't know maybe Aronson on the right as part of the four in the midfield. So it, it was just really two out and out midfielders, Pulisic and and let's say Aronson as wide midfielders slash. How, how do you and then four, four, two. Well, and that's what I'm saying. I, I just assume that anybody, any U.S. fan would want Adams, McKinney, and Musa to be in the midfield. So I, I was thinking about but you can't play three guys in the middle. Well, but I'm four, saying four, two. well, no. But if you, if that if that fourth if you guy is sort of like I said a Rainer and Aronson, but in more of a midfielderish role, 
you'd have you'd populate the midfield with guys and then you're relying on the fullbacks to provide your width so there's a way you could do it that way but again we don't we're trying to read his mind i don't know yeah, what, exactly what he right. meant but so. it's a it's a it's a fun exercise but there's no chance in hell that greg berhalter is playing a 442 you know he at times he might change to a back 3 um and do some different things uh, here or there but that that's that's not what he implemented from the start and that would be a complete deviation and an and an and a complete surprise. Um, what else do we have, Moss? Do you have something from Twitter? Uh, yes. Uh, Joey okay. uh, on Twitter asks, what is your biggest reason for optimism uh, in this year's team? So a couple of reasons, Joey, and thank you for your question. Um, just in general, while I certainly can grumpy old man and grouch with the best of them, uh, I am an optimist when it comes to life in general. And when it comes to my national team, I am not sticking my head in the sand and I am not, um, like I said, just looking through uh, uh, a rose-colored glasses type of thing. Um, But I do believe in seeing things as glass half full as opposed to half empty. But Again, not without reason. And when it comes to this U.S. men's national team, what gives me optimism is they have shown it in the past. So at least I have a history where they have risen to the occasion and they have played in a way that has made me proud and excited and ultimately has been successful in big games. Um, Number two, the youth of this team. I, it gets me excited that we are sending the youngest team to the World Cup. It doesn't mean that there won't be mistakes and even mistakes that will make you pull out your hair. But I think in general, in the overall scheme of things, it is a good thing. I think that that youth will serve them well. I think that they will use that youth to have that youthful swagger to be able to recognize the opportunity um the other thing is i think that there is a much more there's much greater feeling of belonging for these these players and this generation and this team they're not necessarily strangers in a strange land when it comes to not just playing in a world cup but play playing overseas and playing at big clubs and playing in in big games and Therefore, they're not as wide-eyed as my generation kind of just was and had to be. And, you know, I guess finally it goes back to that inherent, like, optimism of believing that when it comes to a World Cup, magical things can happen for all teams and for all players. But in this case, I'm looking at it from a, a U.S. perspective. and the belief and the confidence in yourself that you will be able to tap into magic along with your talent and your ability. I hold that even though I'm not kicking a ball. And I, I love it when I see it in anyone, and in particular when it comes to this, uh, this, this U.S. team. It's not without fault, and it's not without problems and challenges when it comes to this team. And it's certainly not a, uh, a perfect team and it can get their ass kicked and it can make mistakes, but it's still a team that makes me excited. I'm excited that they're back after not having been there last world cup, 
but I'm excited in particular that this team, this group of players, is the one that is taking upon themselves to bring us back to the World Cup because of how different they are individually and collectively and how much better and more advanced they are. So I don't know. I don't know, Mossy. Um, maybe my maybe my belief and my confidence is misplaced. But, you know, I'd rather go out being an optimist than a pessimist. Um, my biggest reason for optimism in the U.S. is watching Gareth Bale play. <laughs> I, I, I'm honest, I'm only half joking. No, I, know, I, I think I think it's strange. I continue to say I think this is the very favorable group for the U.S. I'm, I'm trying to think back to U.S. World Cup teams from 94 on down and how many of them wouldn't get out of this. I think most of them would, if you think about it. England, Wales, Iran. I, I think, uh, you know, I know Iran showed in sure, this sure. recent window they're better than we thought. They beat hmm. Uruguay. They've got some players. Uh, but I still think overall, this is a group set up for the U.S. to get out of it. Yeah, so do it. So do it. All right. And the and the bail thing. I mean, we could we could talk forever on that. It's it's just very very strange. And if he's sandbagging, fine. But it it, it I mean, he, he has been a shell of himself, and now he's even more of a shell of himself since he's come over to Major League Soccer. It's just it's mind numbing. Um, okay. Anything else, Mossy? That's it. All right. Again, thank you for. All of your questions and your comments and your concerns out there, whether it was in the form of voicemail at our uh, State of the Union podcast hotline, 657-549-2297, or in the case of one uh, person texting into that number, which I suppose you can do, but we're probably not going to read a whole lot of them. But this was, since it, since it was such a unique <laughs> thing to happen, we thought we'd include that. And then, of course, on all the uh, social media platforms out there, again, SOTU with Alexi. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, it's the end of our show, and I give you my one for the road. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, welcome back. Uh, it is the end of our show, and at the end of each and every show, I give you my one for the road. Um, we're going to end this show with a take on the Yates Report. For those that don't know, this week, the Yates Report dropped. It is a report that was commissioned by the United States Soccer Federation to look into uh, allegations uh, and reports of verbal, emotional, and sexual misconduct, misconduct within uh, the NWSL. It was a group of women that was put together, and this report uh, that they have put out is 170 pages. So I wanted to read the whole thing before I talked about it, and I did. I read the, uh, the entire thing. And as I said before, it looks into uh, this misconduct, and it finds misconduct when it comes to coaches, uh, administrators and owners in the NWSL. More, more, uh, more so, they also found, although this was not the focus of this, uh, this report, that there are systemic problems within youth soccer. Uh, needless to say, this is not only a long read, but it is an incredibly detailed 
um, read. And it, in equal parts, makes you sad and frustrated uh, and angry at the way that these young women who were incredibly courageous uh, were treated in these professional environments. And the Gates Report also makes recommendations going forward. And I think without a doubt that they should be followed and implemented as quickly as possible. And part of the problem is that they didn't exist. Uh, if and when misconduct is identified and verified, then obviously action needs to be taken. And when that action is taken, that information needs to be shared so that one problem and one mistake don't become more down the line. And as is very, very clearly laid out in this report, that was not the case. And that has not been the case for, um, for a long time, unfortunately. Again, the young women who were following their dream of being professional soccer players in a league that, yes, was fledgling and like all new ventures was starting out and had difficulties and problems and challenges. Ultimately, they were playing soccer and they were in a professional environment, even if at times they weren't treated like they were in a professional environment. Having said all of that, that's no excuse for the misconduct that took place, in particular when we're talking about you know, these coaches that have absolutely no one to blame but themselves for what happened. When it comes to next steps, I talked about the things that need to be done and the recommendations within the report that obviously need to take place. When it comes to the NWSL, you know, this is this is our league. And while this is focused on the NWSL, as I mentioned, the systemic problems that they talk about here, this is not just an NWSL problem. This is a soccer problem. And therefore, whether we are involved or not, directly and or indirectly, we are responsible. And so it's up to us to take action and to support and to make those changes that need to be made to create a healthy and better environment for the existing players, but also for uh, the future players. When it comes to the NWSL and what they are going to do, because this is, this is not just a blemish, this is not just something that, that can be swept away, this is a real problem. It's a real problem from a personal, emotional, and um, a moral perspective, but it's also a problem in terms of this business that continues to grow and that we all want to not just survive, but thrive and has the potential to be great both on and off the field and give future generations the opportunity to live out their dreams as professional athletes, but not in the way that it exists now. And so the changes have to be made and they have to be made quickly. And I don't know what the NWSL is going to do after this has come out. It's a sad, sad week for soccer and obviously for the NWSL. And it requires swift action. 
And we've already seen some of the uh, ramifications of this in the forms of uh, firings. Maybe going forward, we see a cancellation of, I don't know, games or the rest of the league. That's how serious this is right now. Maybe from a practical perspective, you see a rebranding of the NWSL because this will for a long time be attached and that hurts you in terms of the perception and that hurts you from a practical perspective when it comes to the business. And, you know, we've already seen some of the sponsors out there talking about the change that needs to come in order for them to be a part. And that's, that's a good thing. You know, I will say, you know, I am 52 years old and in a life and soccer perspective, I am from a, a different generation. A lot of what is talked about here, I think, is a dramatic representation of the evolution and the change and the progress that our sport is making and relative to the accepted norms of what coaching is and the behavior that is acceptable and isn't acceptable. A lot of this talks about you know, the, ver- the, the verbal misconduct and the emotional misconduct and you know, the yelling. And yelling in and of itself, I don't think anybody thinks is a problem. Certainly, there is an argument that it's not the best way to motivate, but that's a subjective type of opinion out there. And certainly, there are cases where what you say is completely inappropriate and is ultimately abuse. But raising your voice and believing that that is something that you need to do to motivate, calling out players, yeah, even at times shaming and embarrassing players in the things that you say and from a verbal perspective, you know, that's, I know at this point, maybe an old school way of doing things. And again, in and of itself isn't necessarily a problem, but the world is changing and our sport is changing and the way that you are able to coach is changing. And if you don't change with it, you will have problems. And I think that this report dramatically, as I said, lays out the way that things have changed. And, you know, being from a different time and being from a different generation is not a, is not a good excuse. And it's not going to fly going forward. And I hope that going forward, it is crystal clear as to what is acceptable behavior and what isn't acceptable behavior. And that it hasn't been made crystal clear is another one of the problems and another one of the faults when it comes to what's going on. And if it ultimately is a systemic problem that goes well into youth soccer, that has to be dealt with too. So I hope it is. I hope that at a certain point, NWSL, if that's what it's called or anything else, can move forward and learn. But ultimately, this is not a good thing. This is a sad day for American soccer, not just NWSL. And ultimately, my heart goes out to all of the young women who had the courage to step up and to tell their story 
and to talk about their experiences and incredibly detailed way. And I have a daughter. I would never, ever want her to go through something like that. And just because you are a professional soccer player doesn't mean that anybody has the right to do or say some of the things that are alleged in this document. And I hope that we can create a situation for the current players, and like I said, for the future players, that none of them ever have to go through what some of these young women are alleging in this report. If you have the time, read it. Um, if you are into soccer and into American soccer, um, it is part now of our history, not a, not a shining part of our history, but a part of our history nonetheless. And I think um, you would be better off, as difficult as it is to read. And like I said, as maddening and sad as it is ultimately to read. Check it out. Thank you, as always, for hanging out with us here on the State of the Union. I'm sorry we had to finish it off on such a down note, but I wanted to take the time to read it before I talked about it, like I said, and I wanted to take a space within the State of the Union here uh, to talk about it. And who knows, we might talk about it much more going forward as everything kind of moves on and evolves from here, hopefully in a much more positive way. Until next time, size the day.